do remain standing and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, looking at Mark 14, verses 17 through 31. Mark 14, verses 17 through 31. If you don't have a Bible, there's one right in front of you. It's a blue ESV. Before we hear God's Word read, let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking for His help in understanding this text. Your law, O Lord, is perfect. Use it now to revive our souls, we pray. Amen. Mark 14, 17 through 31. Hear now the word of God. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter said said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. may be seated. Many of us are familiar with the story of Joseph, that 11th child of Jacob, Israel, that one who seemed to have gotten the short end of the stick, at least on the front end of his life. We read of his life, we, we thank God for God's faithfulness to Joseph and even Joseph's faithfulness to God in the midst of great trial. And we see, as we read through the narrative, we see Joseph's eventual exaltation. To see the commitment of God to his child, to see Joseph's vindication, we have to see that he was not always in a position of greatness. Indeed, his humiliation began at a very low point in his life, quite literally in a pit. After Joseph had told his brothers and parents what the Lord had in store for him, you'll remember that his siblings did not take very kindly to being told that they were going to be serving Joseph, that they would soon bow down to him. And so they plotted his death. When the dreamer came their way, they said, let us kill him and throw him in one of the pits. Were it not for Reuben's guidance, Joseph would have been murdered by his own brothers. Convinced by the oldest brother, the others agreed merely to catch Joseph and then to cast him down and later on to sell him into slavery. 
The pit was empty until Joseph filled it. There was no water in the pit. And the text says, then they sat down to eat. Tragically, ironically, the brotherhood came to eat with one another without a brother. It was just below them, and they're feasting as brothers, betraying one of their own. The scene is stunning, and it is meant to evoke sorrow for this now-forgotten brother. Now, if Joseph had known that day that by approaching his brothers, they would at that time betray him, I doubt that he would still walk over to them and see if all was well with them. He perhaps would have objected to his father's request to go see how his brothers are doing. His father would have objected. He wouldn't have requested it at all. But you fast forward hundreds of years, and now we have the greater Joseph, Jesus the Christ. And as we saw last week, he, he planned this meal that they are about now to, to have. And in these verses, he will break the news to them that one of them will betray him, that another will deny him, and that the rest of the disciples will run away like a bunch of cats whose paws have barely touched water. The disciples will run off like sheep without a shepherd at the slightest hint of danger. The Lord prepared a meal in the presence of his friends, his friends who will show themselves to be fair-weather friends, men who will not stick closer to Christ as a brother. Nevertheless, Jesus Christ is covenantally committed to eat a meal of grace with his people. That's the essence of these verses, 17 through 31. These verses which, again, surprise, surprise, are organized by us, uh, by, for us by Mark as a sandwich. Many of you are familiar then with this Markin sandwich. We have two pieces of bread, if you will, two parts of a story. The second part is not concluded until there is the meat of the sandwich. And the meat of the sandwich here is the covenantal meal, the Lord's Supper, that's going to be instituted. But on either side of this meat is betrayal. It is denial. It is disowning the Lord. It is defecting from the Lord. In the middle, we have God's commitment to be with his people. And on either side, we have the disciples' rejection of the Son, which makes this sandwich a rather bitter sandwich to eat. Read again with me verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. So last week, we saw that Jesus had sent Peter and John to, uh, to go and prepare the meal for the room that the son had already prepared. The son had, had already uh, gotten the, the man to lead them to the master of the house, and he had already gotten a room for them to prepare the meal so they can have this Passover meal. And now it is evening. And Jesus has come with the twelve, and they are ready to eat. This meal begins in a way somewhat similar to how his meal in Bethany had begun about a week before, you recall. Jesus was reclining at table with his friends, and it was there that he was anointed by Mary. 
And again here, now he is relaxed. He's rejoicing in a time of friendship before his hour, the hour of crucifixion, would come. But what began relaxed quickly turned rather sobering. Now, given what he is about to drop on the laps of these reclining disciples, how could there be any mood but serious? You know the butterflies that wreak havoc on your insides when you think about that hard thing that you have to tell your friend, that difficult, hard-to-swallow truth that for the sake of the relationship must be told to that family member, all the knots inside. You don't want to say anything. Oh, wouldn't it be better if he just said nothing? It eats you up inside. What must have gone through Jesus' mind that night as he was preparing himself to disclose their soon faithlessness, their soon betrayal? But that's really what it boils down to. There's the faithless betrayal of one, there is the denial of another, and then there is the scattering of the rest of the disciples. What's shocking here, perhaps the most shocking part of this heartbreaking revelation is that it is one of them. It is one of the twelve. It's the one who was with Jesus. Now Mark makes this very clear in two ways. He emphasizes it, this intimate connection three times. By saying in verse 17, Jesus came with the twelve. And in verse 18, Jesus says, the one who will betray me is eating with me. And in verse 19, Jesus says, the one who will betray me is dipping the bread with me. And in Greek, there are two ways of saying the word me. One, the emphatic way, and one, the non-emphatic way. And Mark is using the emphatic version here. He's saying, person is literally with Jesus not an outsider, someone on the inside, who is right now eating and drinking with Jesus. Now, this might not be a surprise to you if you've been a Christian for any length of time. But if you're reading this for the first time, this is what you know to be as a plot twist. This is when you're reading, you slam the book shut. You scream at that the TV screen. You say, no way. Are you kidding me? One of the 12 here? What? I did not see that happening. I didn't see it coming. Again, it might be hard to, to read it in that way. But that's just to show that we're, we're not being sensitive to the text to the gospel as it is unfolding, as Mark is telling us, this is a really big deal. It's one of them. Betrayal is hard to believe. It's hard to wrap your mind around it. Familiar, if you're familiar with, with baseball, then you know the name Pete Rose. It should be familiar to you. He's famous and infamous at the same time. He played for the Reds. He later managed for the Reds. He held records for almost anything that you can have a record for in baseball. Number of hits, number of at-bats, on and on. Had three World Series titles, MVP, Rookie of the Year, Gold Glove, on and on. You name it. His achievements are many. You, you might even think that he would be the perfect candidate for the Hall of Fame. So he was. And he would have been in the Hall of Fame decades ago, 
were it not for his betrayal, were it not for his betting on baseball. As a player and later as a manager, he betted on baseball. Some say he never betted against his own team, but perhaps the evidence suggests otherwise. He betrayed the game that he devoted his whole life to as a player and as a manager. He, he used what he loved for his own gain, illegally. Betrayal is, is always shocking. It is never not a surprise if it is to be true betrayal. You don't see it coming. You don't see it coming because of the trust. The, the, the relationship has been one of trust. You've committed trust to someone. You have been more intimate with that individual than perhaps with others. You're sharing things with them that you don't share with other people. You're doing things with them that you don't do with other people. You have a connection. And then they break it. They break that intimacy. They break that trust. The disciples here are all shocked. Surely the betrayer is not among them, one of the twelve. It's unimaginable, Lord. It couldn't be. They've left everything to follow Jesus. They've picked up their crosses for crying out loud. They've, they've seen him work wonders. They've seen water turn into wine. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen him heal and raised from the dead. They've seen him kick demons out of people. They have heard his teaching that is unlike any other teaching. They've, they've heard salvation from the lips of the Savior. Surely the betrayer is not among them. Surely the, the betrayer is among the ignorant. The person just doesn't know. Perhaps the, the uninvested or all those fringe followers, all those that are not part of the twelve. Surely, that's where the betrayer is. That's the one who's going to give up Jesus. Not us. Not one of us. They didn't get it when Jesus said that he would be handed over. Either that, or they didn't think that they would be the one to hand Jesus over. Had it been someone else. Their own questioning. Is it I? This leaves the impression that if they just happened to betray their teacher, it certainly would, would have just been an accident. It would have been unintentional. A, mo- a moment of weakness that they really didn't intend. No. The act of betrayal will be no accident. The act of betrayal will be no misstep but of malice aforethought with all the evil that a dark heart can muster. And when you read the Gospels, you you see, especially in the Gospel of John, you see that Judas knew that Jesus knew that he was the one. What we have here, as I mentioned earlier, is the historical enactment of Psalm 41 especially verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus knew that Judas would be the one to betray him. The scriptures foretold it. 
So even when Jesus is calling his 12 disciples, he calls one, he calls one who will be his undoing. There are only 12 spots to fill. And Judas is among them. And Jesus committed trust to Judas. He was the one who held, uh, who, who held the money, the money bag. There was some trust committed to Judas. He did have some position of influence. The history of humanity is full of traitors, beginning with Cain, his fratricide, his murder of his brother Abel. Every generation has its own betrayers, its own traitors. Gaius Cassius, Marcus Brutus, Guy Fawkes, Benedict Arnold, on and on and on. But Judas is unmatched in his villainy. Judas is unsurpassed in his duplicity. Sometimes when we're trying to seek uh, for an illustration of, of who best personifies evil, number one candidate is Hitler, right? He is the poster child of darkness. People will even say, in reference to some other person they don't like, oh, he's, he's literally Hitler. Not really the, use, the right use of literally, but say he's really evil. Because Hitler is really evil, and that person is personifying evil as well. There's no doubt about Hitler's evil, the horrors committed by his hands. But what is Hitler compared to Judas? Hitler's a, a furry little kitten next to this leonine Judas. Judas, as we saw, he's a volunteer. He's a villain. He's not a tragic character. He's the one who brought tragedy in his train. You might say he is the most wicked of all creatures. Judas will soon disown Jesus we see in verse 27, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. If the disciples had known it was Judas, they'd be tempted to wipe the sweat off their brow. Sigh, a big sigh of relief. Just go on their merry way following Jesus. Or maybe they would tackle Judas. Though there's intriguing verse in John that, leads us to believe that John knew that it was Judas, though he didn't tell anyone else. We might wipe the sweat off our brow and say, Whew, I'm not Judas. This doesn't apply to me. It's a good thing I'm not Judas. It is a good thing you're not Judas, because Judas is in hell. There's no doubt about it, as the scriptures foretold. But Jesus on this second piece of bread in this Markin sandwich, it says, not so fast, disciples. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Yes, but everyone else is going to flee from me. The disciples' defection begins with a scattering. Jesus quotes and slightly changes the verbal tense of Zechariah 13, 7. 
Zechariah 13, 7 says, strike and the sheep will be scattered. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Here, Jesus says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will strike the shepherd. The disciples' shock is surpassed when we realize that it is God, the Father, who strikes Jesus. As one man wondered, is he not the good shepherd? Referring to Jesus. Is he not the good shepherd who has already fed the sheep and promised them eternal life? Jesus is a good shepherd. How how could the Father strike the good shepherd? He's not been a bad shepherd like the religious leaders in the Old Testament and the scribes and Pharisees here in the New Testament. No one shepherded the flock like Jesus. He doesn't deserve to be stricken. Smitten? Afflicted? But it's the Father who is the striker of his own only begotten anointed one, the King and Good Shepherd of the sheep. This brings us to the prophecy in Isaiah 53, verse 10. It had pleased the Lord to crush his son. The Father was pleased to crush, to strike his son, Shepherd. Not because the son had done anything wrong. Because the son had willingly given his life to bear that wrath of the father. It pleased the father to crush the son. It pleased the father to strike the shepherd. And with the father's sound striking, the disciples scatter like roaches exposed to the light. They who were just hours before eating with him will be repulsed by him. They will leave. They will be terrified by their teacher. And just as certain as Judas's final act of betrayal is Peter's temporary denial and the disciples' defection. And Peter could deny it all he wanted. He was confident even that he would be the last faithful one. As he says, They'll fall away. Even if they do, I will not. I will die with you. I will not deny you. So he he doubles down. He says, you're wrong, teacher. Yes, you're the Christ. Yes, you're the king. But hey, everyone makes mistakes. This has to be. Oh, God forbid. This has to be your only mistake in an otherwise perfect life and ministry. I won't deny you. I can't deny you. You alone have the words of eternal life. You are the Christ. I won't. I can't. And Peter believed that he would die that very night when he unsheathed his sword and he cut off Malchus's ear. He believed that that was his last stand, that he wasn't getting out of that garden of Gethsemane. I think he did believe that he was going to die that night. He was going to give up his life for his Savior, maybe to buy Savior a few extra minutes to get out, to escape the clutches of the religious leaders and the Romans. But as hard as it is to hear, Jesus' words will still stand true. Verse 30, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now all the things that Jesus says are true. But sometimes he emphasizes the truthfulness by saying, truly, 
or amen. Oftentimes you'll see this in John's gospel, truly, truly, I say to you, which is literally, amen, amen, I say to you. And here he's telling Peter, truly, I tell you, this very night, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows a second time. This very night, there aren't too many hours left for Peter to deny him once, twice, thrice. Yes, thrice, three times. He would die three times before the rooster crowed a second. And Mark is the only one of the gospel writers who mentions that the rooster crowed a second time because, remember, Mark is writing with the influence of Peter. Mark is Peter's spiritual son. So Peter wants Mark to make it very clear that this really did happen. That he heard the rooster crow the first time, but he kept denying Jesus. Not one more time, but two more times. Three times. If one denial is bad enough, one denial of the Lord is bad enough, a thrice denial couldn't be worse. The situation, Peter is telling us, was really that bad. There is no sugarcoating Peter's denial. There is shame here, as there ought to be, because the Son will never betray, will never deny his disciples. We might be resting on our laurels saying, well, again, we're not one of these 12, so we can skate on by. Say, well, that's a good history lesson, Pastor Mock. Uh, These people failed to be faithful to Jesus at his time of need. But we won't. We won't fail. Because we're his disciples, and we've got all this. We've got this greater revelation. We've got the Spirit. We'll be better. Well, these moldy pieces of Mark's sandwich are not without their healthy application. We see... Sovereignty. Here we see sinfulness of man. God works all things out. Yes, even evil things. He works it all out for his glorious plan. There will be outright rebellion pouring out of Judas's darkened heart. But what Judas intends for evil, God means for good. There will be despair in the hearts of the disciples for leaving their Lord. And how could there be anything but despair? They were sorrowful when Jesus told them. And they said, is it I? Sorrow was the right response. But what grieved the disciples will be used soon to glorify the Lord of glory. And there is hope. Do you see the hope? Verse 28 Just after he says, you sheep will be scattered, he says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus is committed to his people. You guys are going to run away. Do you know what? That's not going to affect my resurrection. I'm going to be raised from the dead. And when I am raised from the dead, I'm not going to leave you like you left me. I'm going to go before you to Galilee. You're going to, you're going to come. As we read in the story of Mark's gospel, he is with his disciples many times after his resurrection. 
and continues to minister to them. He even breathes the Holy Spirit upon them. Do you see the grace of hope beaming from Jesus' beautiful eyes? Yes, there, there will be grief in the disciples' hearts. How could there not be grief? But they need to mix that grief with the hope of the resurrection of Christ. And that Christ is still going to be with them. That has to be the most shocking statement in these verses. It's not that Judas will betray Jesus. It's not that Peter will deny Jesus. It's not that the disciples will leave Jesus. It's that despite all that, Jesus will stay. Jesus will be raised from the dead. And he will be with his people. He is committed to his people. If God can use the most heinous sin of Judas for his glory, for our good, truly, he will use your own heinous sins that are against him, that are an offense against his law, for his glory and your good. Perhaps only you know what those heinous sins are. Perhaps you've entrusted, you've confessed to someone the nature, the effect of that heinous sin, that life of debauchery, life of of hatred for God. And as you think about those years, as you think about that thing that you did, that word you spoke in your heart, you should shudder. You should grieve. That's not beyond the grace of God either. God can use that. God does use that. We are assured that he will use that for his glory, for your good, for the good of one another. Oh, pray that you would not sin against him so heinously. May that be a constant prayer of ours. But when you do sin, pray that the Lord, in a way that only he can do, would use it for his glory. God is still sovereign over the most wicked sins. We see sinfulness here. Though there is a flash of hope from Christ's countenance, there is also a warning. We all have the capacity to sin. We see from the disciples' shock and their shocking denial that we are actually them. I'd say we are them as in one of the 11. It wasn't foretold that we would betray the Lord and be a son of destruction. But we are just like those other 11. Peter's problem was that he never thought that he was capable of betrayal. He was too sure of himself, too sure of his power, too sure of his ability, too sure of his trust and his faithfulness. But two warnings from from Paul come to mind. Let he who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. If you think you're going to stand and you're going to do that in your own power, you will fall. 
If you think that there's ever a point where you have arrived, that every sin would be beyond you, well, that is just a lie that the devil wants you to believe. But he who thinks he stands, take heed lest you fall. And Paul also says there, but for the grace of God, go I. I know where I would end up if it weren't for the grace of God. I know our destination would be the same as Judas's destination were not for the grace of God. So pray. Pray for increased humility. Oh, humble me, Lord, to know my own capacity to sin, my own proclivity to, to speak a word that is against you, to have something in my heart that denies you, to, to speak against someone that you've joined me with. I'll be in prayer always. Oh, yes, there was only one Judas, but there are many Judas-like people. Hebrews 6, we read earlier, those who've tasted the heavenly gift, those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the powers of the age to come, and then said, forget Jesus. It's impossible for them to be restored again to repentance Judas was not the only one who tasted the heavenly gift. There are, from every generation, people in the church who receive the Lord's Supper, who hear the Word of God read, who hear the Word of God preached week after week, and are not true believers. Oh, to to be exposed to so much light and to reject it. In 1 John 2, John says that there are people who came from us, but they were not truly of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. They would have persevered. But they went out from us to show that they were not truly among us. So there are people who are false disciples. Diabolical diatrophies in 3 John, he hated the brothers. He kicked people out for Receiving, for welcoming itinerant missionaries. Demas, he had once greeted the Colossians. Later on, at the end of his life, deserted Paul because he loved the world. And Paul warns the Ephesian elders that wolves might come from them. Oh, to be an elder and to deny the Lord. To be an under-shepherd and to reject your shepherd. The Bible is chock full of culprits, men and women who deny the Lord. And there's a reason for this constant testimony of those who defected, those who've who've heard the word of God, who've seen the Son, said no. The Lord wants you to use these as warnings that you might stay awake, that you might remain steadfast, that you might grow in humility that you might see your own sin with greater clarity. Now, in the meat of this Mark and Sandwich, we come briefly to this meal that is a bodily meal. It is a bloody meal. Verse 22, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. Now, every single Lord's Day, we take the Lord's Supper. 
I'm not going to wax long here, even though this is the, the center of the, the text. But we see the bread as blessed, broken, bestowed, and as a body. Like the Father at the Passover meal, Jesus, the head of his disciples, blesses the bread. This language is, is used earlier in Mark 10 when Jesus blessed the children in his arms. You might remember he took them up in his arms and he said a prayer and he blessed them. He's setting them apart. He said these belong to the kingdom of God. And now he's, the, the same language here is that he is blessing this bread. The children have a special place in the kingdom of Christ. So now does this bread is set apart, is devoted to the Lord. After predicting his death three times, he now provides a symbol of his death. To ensure that his disciples get the message, he breaks the bread and he says, This will happen. Get it through your heads. I've told you three times. Now I'm showing you. I will die. My body will be broken. And it's bestowed. After breaking the sign of his body, he freely bestows it upon his disciples. The Savior spares not the bread. He doesn't go into a corner of this, of this room and, he, and then eats the bread himself. You guys are all going to leave me, so this bread is just for me. It's not for you. Oh, true to his generous heart, he gives. He gives this bread. And as he's giving, he's giving himself. He's giving them life. He's saying, this bread is my body. Oh, vats of ink have been spilt in the history of the church to explain what is, is here. No, Jesus does not equate the bread with his body to say that they are exactly the same. as some kind of mysterious way that the bread suddenly trans, you know, transubstantiates that its substance is entirely different, that it becomes the body. And so it's taste, it tastes like bread, it feels like bread, it smells like bread, but it's actually the body of Jesus. That's not what Jesus is saying here. And no less is he saying that it's, they're not the same, but you really can't separate the two, as the Lutherans would have us believe. Like water in a, in a sponge, you really can't separate the two, but they're too different. It's water and the sponge. That's not what he's saying. But neither is he saying that Jesus, that this is a mere memorial, that it's just a bare sign. It's just something that we do in memory. Yes, we do it in memory. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus says. But it's not a mere memorial. One, one author says, our memories of Christ are no substitute for his living presence. When we feast, we are truly with Christ. The Spirit truly takes us into the heavens and we feed upon Christ by faith. So there's a real connection between the body and the bread, between the blood and the wine. There is a sacramental union that we cannot fully explain. We might want to call the bread and the wine channels of grace. The means by which God gives grace to us as we partake by faith. And so as you truly eat the real bread, truly do you feed upon the real life of Christ and verses 23 through 25, we read, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. 
Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So as the Lord does with his bread body, now he does with his cup blood. It is given in thanks. It is given to his disciples. It is given as the blood of the covenant and it is given in the coming kingdom. It is given in thanks. Some of us don't like the, the language Eucharist because it smacks of Roman Catholicism, but it's just a, a word that means to give thanks. And we ought to recover that word. What we are doing is a Eucharistic meal. It is a Thanksgiving meal. And he gives thanks to his Father for this sacramental cup. This drink is one of blessing, is one of redemption. So it's worthy of giving thanks to God. It is given to his disciples. Again, he did not deprive his disciples of his much-needed life. As he gave the bread, he gives the cup. This is different from what later became the Roman Catholic practice. Remember, if, if, the blood, if, if the wine literally becomes the blood of Jesus, what happens if you spill it is you've spilled the blood of Jesus on the ground and you don't want a rat to lick it up. Do you really trust the parishioners to, to take the cup and not spill any? Spill the precious blood of Jesus? And so eventually, the cup was withheld from the people. They didn't get to drink it. They got half of the meal. They got the body, but they didn't get the lifeblood of Christ. But Jesus freely gives his life for his people. And so these disciples freely drink. You don't need the bread only, but you need the blood as well. Oh, the blood of Jesus. It is given as blood of the covenant. Jesus uses this language only one other time. Or uses this language that is used only one other time. In Exodus 24, verse 8, when Moses confirmed the old covenant, he took the blood of animals and he threw it on the people. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant. Imagine being in the congregation and Moses sprinkling blood upon your face, just splashed with lamb blood. That'll leave a memory, wouldn't it? And our Lord, who is greater than Moses, now sprinkles us clean with his atoning blood, blood of the new covenant, covenant that is better than the old covenant, better the covenant where there's the fulfillment of all those Old Testament promises, the substance of, of all those Old Testament types and shadows. And so as we drink, the new covenant is renewed and his atoning life covers our sins. His victory over death, his victory over sin becomes our victory over death, becomes our victory over sin. And through this meal, we fellowship with Christ truly. And Jesus says this is given in the coming kingdom. He and his disciples will drink this together again. He anticipates the marriage supper of the Lamb, spoken of by John in Revelation. His whole bride, the whole church, the righteous saints, will feast on Mount Zion again when he comes back. And so through the bread and the wine, Christ, as one man said, is is both the host and the meal. He is the one giving you the meal, and he is the meal. He is giving you himself through this supper. You need his body. You need his blood. 
We love our meals, don't we? Any old meal might do, but there are special meals. Thanksgiving meal, a Christmas meal, maybe it's a a date night meal, birthday meal, memorial day meal, on and on. We like to gather people, say let's celebrate something and do so with food. Of course, God has made us for that. That's one of the purposes of food, is bringing bringing one another together. But there is no meal like this meal. There is no bread like this bread. There is no cup like this cup. Because there is no Christ other than what is seen here in the supper. There's only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so, because there is no Meal like this, we sing. Verse 26 says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. When, when Mark mentions that they sang a hymn, they did by singing a psalm. It, it baffles my mind how the disciples could sing after a revelation like that, that one of them would betray the Son. I don't know how they could do it. They were, they were just kind of muttering some of the words. Perhaps they sang with great sobriety. But probably they sang because, unlike them, Jesus will never leave them nor forsake them. Because even though Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, y'all are going to scatter, he still has them sing. Because there is still hope. Jesus will rise. Yes, he will die. He will rise, though. And he'll be with his people. This Passover meal was concluded with the singing of a hymn, with the singing of a psalm. And Psalms 113 through 118 were often sung in the whole uh, complex of events of the Passover. And I encourage you to read Psalms 113 to 118 later on today. But just briefly summarizing each of these psalms, Verse or 113 is an introductory psalm to call God's people to praise the Lord. Psalm 114 is a psalm of remembrance of the exodus of God's mighty powers to save. Psalm 115 is a warning not to trust in false gods, but to trust alone in the Lord. Psalm 116 is a, is a psalm of remembrance of the Lord who rescues us from death. And it is also a call to look to his promise for life when we die. Psalm 117 is a call to all the nations to worship the Lord alone. And Psalm 118 is a remembrance of the mercy of God, the grace of God that is bestowed upon his people. These psalms then tell the history of redemption. They tell the story of a people that is called out by God to worship God and then to testify to the nations of how great and awesome a God they serve. This is what the Passover meal is all about. Grace, redemption, and proclamation of those redemptive deeds. This is why they sang. This is why we can sing after a very serious meal like one we're going to take. We can sing because it is a meal that is brought, that the picture is the redemption that is given to us by grace. The remarkable lesson we learn from these middle verses then is that Jesus is steadfastly committed to eat with his people despite their dispersion, despite their weaknesses, despite their imperfections. 
Our Lord, our Christ is committed to his people and he delights to give himself to us. He delights to be with us. He knows all too well every one of your imperfections. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our sins that we don't tell anyone about. And still, he gives us himself. The application is quite simple. Eat. Do not refrain from eating if you're in Christ. Drink. Do not refrain from drinking if you hold Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. And sing. Sing, yes, with sober hearts, but sing with hearts full of joy. As one man said, God is not so much a God of consumption as he is a God of communion. He delights to be with us, and that's what we see in this meal. Let's pray. Your testimony, O Lord, is sure. Use it now to make wise your simple creatures who love you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.